0: So, as we're about to hear, this episode was recorded far in the past to coincide with the release of Dune Part 2. Because, you know, we're being smart, we're timing our episodes for search engine optimization and other podcasty terms. And uh, at the time, the writers were on strike, but the actors hadn't joined yet, and we were under the assumption that the threat of your writers and your actors being on strike at the same time would make the producers realize that they're being morons and to give the actors what they wanted, give the writers what they wanted, end this all thing quickly. And that's not what happened, because here we are some time later. The strike is now looking like it's going into the new year. I've seen reports going that it will probably be spring at the earliest before any of this is resolved and uh, studios have decided that they would rather delay their major movies like Dune part two instead of paying half a percent of their annual income to the people that make that money for them yeah just (sighs) so we had a choice we could either sit on this episode and wait for Dune part two to come out and release it then But the problem there is, well, it might get lost. It might get corrupted. Any number of bad things can happen to us when it comes to technology, or we could release it as planned, you know, put it into the regular episode feed, let you guys enjoy it and encourage you to come back whenever part two eventually comes out. And I think that's that's the right choice because this is still a great discussion. It's still fun to figure out what's going on with Dune. We love talking with Scott. And it gave us an opportunity to double down on our stance of we're a pro-union podcast. We are pro-union people. We believe that everyone should have a union. And we believe that the writers and actors should get everything they're asking for, even the stupid, ridiculous shit, because they're negotiating with billion-dollar corporations. They can afford to give ground. Anyways, enjoy the episode. Welcome to Geeks with S.H.I.E.L.D.s, your home for all things good and nerdy in this, the darkest timeline. I'm Lord Cameron Orc, and with me as always is...
1: His S.H.I.E.L.D. brother, Axel Ray. How's it going today? It is okay. My stomach's a little not happy, because it's probably the sandwich I had earlier. Uh, I did work out today, so I'm just feeling like physically kind of weird. But emotionally, I'm alright. I'm in a better place than I was the last couple of days, at the very least. So, eh, how are you doing?
0: Uh, I'm not gonna go too far into it, needless, I'll just say, Ulrich back update, it is now, currently at time of recording, approaching legal action time.
1: Well, hey man, I don't think there's anything I can do to help you, but if there is, you let me know, because this is bullshit, the situation
0: you're in. It's basically looking more and more like I am irreparably broken and if I want to be paid for that, I'm going to have to lawyer up.
1: I do like, on a somewhat tangential note, and I admit to being largely ignorant of the finer details of this, so don't take what I say too seriously. But with the whole WGA and SAG stuff happening at time of recording, I'm very like happy to see a lot of pro-union sentiment in my social circles. I mean, I already knew that, but seeing it like in the media sphere is nice.
0: Yeah, no, fucking support your goddamn unions, people. Because without them, well, you know, you're going through what without the most of us are. We're not going to want that tangent. Just no, fucking support unions. Form a union. We need more fucking unions.
1: Yeah. Now, before we go off on that tangent and the actual topic, you have a privilege to. Deliver.
0: Yeah, I'm gonna talk about our wonderful, wonderful patrons. They are Pam Gelly, Markey, Chris Chipman, River Gelly, Krug, Arthur Crane, Kevin Bay, Brennan, John Vinnels, Kit Kenny, Seth Decker, Dona Lucy, Patrick Anderson, Carson Mel, Scott Rubin, Derek Tacati, and Peter Cook. Now, if you'd like to join the Illustrious Legion, head on over to patreon.com forward slash geeks with And if you join at the $5 tier, Patreon will give us some of that money and you'll get extra content in return.
1: And today we have a returning guest. Go ahead and introduce yourself. Hello, I
2: am Scott Rubin, and I am very excited to be here once again. Yeah, uh, Norse meat for anyone who doesn't know. (laughs) (laughs) Right, or or that.
1: (laughs) Anyway, I don't actually know where this topic was originated from. I can understand why we're doing it right now, but Ulrich, why don't you tell us what we're going to be talking about today?
0: Well, if everything goes correctly, this is coming out before the premiere of Dune Part two and i don't know about you but i watched dune part one and my own personal thoughts on that we'll get into but i'm like i feel like there's a bunch of shit this movie just thinks i inherently know and understand <laughs> and i remember talking to scott like no no you see that's these people and if you and, and there were these people and these people are like see this is context the movie thinks i have i i, and I, I will don't. say
1: and I'm very open to being corrected here because it's been probably about 15 years since I tried to read Dune. Mm-hmm. But my experience trying to read Dune as a you know teenager was that that felt true about Dune as well, the book, what you just said.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so uh... I had the idea that, hey, let's bring Scott on to prep people who might not want to go into Dune 2 with more. Oh, good, you're back for more. Okay, this <laughs> is this person, the heir of this person, and they are related to this person. Oh, my gosh, really? Now, that
1: and means, it's... I assume, because I was not party to the conversation that spawned this topic, but I assume that means, Scott, that you are a fan of Dune as a entity.
2: I, I am. I, I am definitely, yes. I have my, my bona fides. Um, so, yeah, growing up, my, my dad was a, a huge geek, um, you know, back before it was cool to be a geek. And and I vividly remember he had, like, a bookshelf full of sci-fi, a little bit of fantasy, mostly sci-fi. And he was always, he was always had this thing, like, basically, like, I could just go and pick out any book I wanted and check it out. And, you know, there was no limitations on that kind of stuff. And one of the books that he had prominently was, well, he had the whole Dune collection. Um, and I had, you know, even as a as a kid, I would, you know, read a little bit here and there. Very much not understanding it until later, but um, uh, but yes, I've read I've read the series multiple times. Um, I've seen just about all the media there is to do with it. Uh, I've read we have read entire Dune books on streams before, and done lot, lots of cool stuff with with Dune. Excellent.
1: So, yeah. Well, then I want to, if you don't mind, I want to get out some of my 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 things first because I'd like this to be. I like us to do positive videos and recordings mostly. So I get my questions and stuff that might not have the necessary positive spin out right off the bat To get so sure. we can move past them. Because like I said, I tried to read Dune when I was probably like in the middle of high school. And I don't remember how far I knew what I got, but I remember that the book is written in a way that changes perspective constantly, like paragraph to paragraph. At least that was the my memory. I remember that being really hard for me to parse as someone who's read it probably a lot more recently than i have Mm. do you like am i am i am i crazy is there is there something to what i'm saying here
2: no there there definitely is and that's actually been one of the big challenges when it comes to adapting the book into a movie or um or the like That there was a mini series on the sci-fi channel is that yeah the book has a ton of internal monologues and it's like, well, how how do we put that on screen? Are we just gonna have a bunch of voiceovers and people just staring at each other? Yeah. Uh, and so they, I remember. So
1: they... I remember more than once while I was reading it, getting halfway through a paragraph and realizing, I don't know who's thinking right now.
2: <laughs> yeah. No, that 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 definitely can happen. You're 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 not the, you're not the only one who who would have been challenged by that for sure. Okay. And it's, I want
1: to be clear. Yeah. I've read plenty of like. Old sci-fi, so it's not like that kind of thing. I read the whole Chronicles of the Lensman series when I was in middle school, and that's that was written, fuck, that was written in the 1930s. Like it's old shit. I read all of Battlefield Earth. That's a crazy book. Mm. So like,
0: oh, Battlefield Earth.
1: Yeah. So, and I respect Dune. I respect the hell out of Dune. I understand its important placement in science fiction, but it's one of those things where I came to a realization after watching the film. Because again, I never finished the book, but I watched the film, and I had this moment where I was like, the Dune part one, obviously, and I have mm. not watched the old, like, David Bowie or the miniseries one, although I've heard the miniseries one is actually fantastic from a few friends of mine. I came to this realization that I don't think Dune is bad by any means, but I think it is exactly the kind of sci-fi that is generally not my cup of tea. Like, sure, it is very, and I don't mean this as a negative or positive, just observational, it's very self-serious. And I mm-hmm. like my sci-fi a bit more campy. I mean, maybe not full camp, but a bit more just fun, for lack of a better term. I think it comes from being raised on, on Star Trek, primarily. And, I'm, and I get it. I've read some Asimov, and I've read some Clark. Mm-hmm. So I, I, yeah. So it's just one of those things where, like, okay, I think this is probably really good in a way that doesn't directly appeal to me, and that's okay.
2: Yeah, and, and one, one of the things that people talk about doing, the novel doing differently than most things had done before... Um, And and they liken it to Lord of the Rings is that it was kind of the first sci-fi novel to like really, really focus on world building. And because of that, there's a lot of like, here's a bunch of backstory on the grass that grows, you know, in rare places on Arrakis. And yeah, there's there's definitely a lot to that. But yeah, Frank Herbert, I mean, he spent six years researching and writing the book and like he he wanted to get a lot of stuff (laughs) In that book, and, and he packed it in there, for sure. Yeah,
1: and I, uh, I'll, coincidentally, I was visiting Wretched Giraffe last week with my girlfriend, and my girlfriend's a huge fan of Zendaya and Timothy mm. Chalamet, or whatever that kid's name is. Mm-hmm. No offense to him, I just... <laughs> I have only liked him so far in The French Dispatch, and I feel like there's a reason for that. I, I don't understand him, but, all right, not the point. Quick
0: sidebar, real quick. What did she think of the Wonka trailer?
1: Hmm. I, I don't know what she thought. I know that I watched her scroll. I was watching her scroll through like Instagram. And I saw her. She saw like a poster of it, and she was just like, "My boy Timmy."
0: So that's because <laughs> if she likes Timothy Chalamet, and I don't mean to judge her too harshly, I feel like that movie was made for her then. Because I feel like that's the only audience that exists for that movie.
1: Maybe I, again, I I liked him in French Dispatch, but that's because Wes Anderson has a very specific thing that he does that I think mm-hmm. Timothy actually is good at. I've only seen him in like two other films and I just don't understand his appeal. He feels like a less charismatic Tom Holland to me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, I mean, you're not wrong. <laughs> yeah.
1: And so it was really funny because our buddy wretched had not seen Dune part one. And mm. I had made my opinion on that movie. Well known, which I, I would get, I'm getting to, I did not care for that movie for a few reasons, even beyond the, it not being made for me. I have a big issue with the sound Uh, how the sound is mixed that, like, really hurts me. But anyway, so my girlfriend was like, all right, let's watch Dune, because Retchy hasn't seen it. We sat down and watched it, and we got to the end, and she turned to me, and I went, all right, did you have a good time? And she went, I forgot how much of that movie is nothing happening. (laughs) 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 Which was really funny to me, because she basically blocked out everything that wasn't
2: Timothy and Zendaya. (laughs) Mm, Got it. It. it I, uh, we'll we'll get into more of this things later, but it's so I I recently rewatched this Dune Part One as well as David Lynch's Dune, which I love, which we'll talk about. But it is kind of amazing how much Dune Part One. It's a long movie and not that much. I mean, yeah, obviously there's a lot of plot in the movie, but compared to what they packed into the David Lynch movie and what the book has, they left a lot of stuff out. And there's like, if you really go back and look at it, it's like. There's not that much substance in this yeah. already two-hour part one. It's funny, because yeah, the movie... Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Yeah, that part
1: one movie is filled with great talent between Josh Brolin oh, yeah. and Oscar Isaac and it's a Jason Omoa. And I, I, I can't help it. Timothy Shalman just feels like a charisma void at the middle of it, and since he's the character that we have to most follow. Although, I did watch... Uh, I, I've, I've watched several times, Thug Notes did his, like, summary of the book, so I remember getting this idea in my head, and someone who's actually read the full book, and I'm talking, and now you can tell me, I have this idea that the character of uh, Paul Atreides has to simultaneously be a kind of a messiah type, while also mm. being very obviously way in over his head, like, all the time, mm. is the impression I've gotten from hearing people talk about it. That part part of the reason why his name is... Paul, which is a simple name compared to so many mm-hmm. other characters, is that he's literally getting swept up in forces far beyond his control, and his acceptance of that idea is what leads him to whatever sort of uh, mm-hmm. enlightenment that he gets by the end of the book.
2: Yeah, and we I should say, um, I, I'm going to try not to spoil too much of what's going to be in Part 2, but, you know, I mean, we're, we're yeah. talking about the book, so like... So,
0: well, this is going to be like a basic primer of.
2: Sure. Here's yeah. what's
0: happening, so you don't come out of part yeah. two going. And we'll get I yeah. don't know who the fuck those people were. And we'll get into the primer.
1: Bad? Yeah, we'll get into the primer proper. I've just never spoken to someone who's actually read the books, and this, this is these ideas in my head that I want to see if there's any actual validity to them, or it's just wrong cultural osmosis, you know? Oh, I've no, no, talked
0: yeah. to plenty of people, and they've all been really rude about it to me. Like, it. Here's the thing: I read Dune, bounced off it. I watched Dune, bounced <laughs> off it. And most of the people that love Dune just go, oh, well, you just don't get it because 40K. <laughs> it's usually the response. Like, no, it is 40K, but 40K has an idea of, holy shit, this is fun and grand, and Dune is just so, so serious. Like, no, we don't smile here. Yeah, and I, uh, and I get the impression... We do not appreciate how awesome a setting this is because reasons. Well, that's what I'm saying. I get the impression yeah. from,
1: like, online videos i've seen that dune has a lot to say particularly about like narratives like it's a story whose meta narrative is kind of about the concept of narratives is what i the Mm -hmm. impression i get and paul being both a jesus figure and also someone who recognizes that him being a jesus figure is a fucked up aspect of his life he has no control of is like the main reason he apparently works as a protagonist at least that's the yes. feeling i get.
2: Yes, all yes to all of that. Um, and and it, again like i i, I don't want to we'll talk about general things not not super specifically like spoiler stuff although again like technically there will be some spoilers for a 60 year old book and then an <laughs> upcoming movie so it's kind of like a weird spot. But um but yes, there's the Dune and especially once you get into a couple of the sequels has a lot a lot a lot to say about messianic figures and uh for telling the future and what kind of a nightmare all of those things can be for those involved in sort of on every level but but yes every everything you're saying and again like some people there's a very superficial reading you can make of dune being like a, a white savior story and and that is a superficial reading because it, it is it it is that but it is most it is also very much not that in the way it turns that on its head I mean the impression yeah, I've got
1: gotten... that
0: accusation. Yeah. The, times, I was hoping you could address it. But what I yeah. heard and what
1: I've heard, and again without spoiling the exact details, I've heard that it the reason why that is a a a disingenuous read is because one of the points, to my understanding, of Paul Atreides as a character, is that he seems like a white savior, but at the end of the day, the people that he is quote unquote the white savior for accomplish everything they accomplish essentially regardless of his existence that he's really a figurehead that doesn't actually is not actually required for them to succeed does that make sense
0: which is is a dangerous thing to try and hang your hat on it's like no no he's not a white savior he's just a white savior figurehead like well, again, yeah, I don't you know how ac- don't there, again but... I don't know how
2: accurate that is. That's why I'm letting Scott, yeah, yeah. So okay, so so let's talk about so in part one, one of the things that that they they kind of mention it a couple times, and it'll be actually it'll be really interesting to talk to you guys because you saw the movie, but you're not familiar with the the book or. or well, the well, actually, Scott, if there. I can
1: interrupt you real quick, I'm sorry, yep. I'm gonna because uh, we've gone into this whole like experiences and stuff. Let's actually now take this moment to I'm just gonna give you the microphone. Just give the for anyone who, for instance, didn't see the movie, and hasn't read the book, give the base primer, and then move into your next point you're about to make.
2: Sure, absolutely. Uh, so we are in the year 10,191, and uh, the universe is controlled by uh, the the Empire of Humanity, and there is, okay, how do we do this? Because <laughs> there's a lot. Uh, trying to limit, okay, limit the backstory. Uh, basically, the universe is controlled by uh, a couple different things. The the emperor of humankind, essentially, uh, Emperor Shaddam the Fourth, and he is nominally in control. But there's also a sect, uh a group of the great houses of humanity, so like the nobles, essentially, uh, and that's called the Landsrad. And then there's also the Spacing Guild that has the complete monopoly on space travel. So if you want to move something to another planet and sell something, you got to pay the Spacing Guild. Uh, the, every, and everybody's always trying to screw each other over, it's capitalism, um, you know, all that kind of stuff. So when we when the movie opens, uh, Spice, the spice melange, is the most important, most valuable substance in the universe. It lets the guild navigators fold space and guide their spaceships, otherwise you can't have interstellar space travel. Uh, or I mean, any space travel, really. Um, spice is used for other stuff, too, it makes rich people live longer. Um, Other people use it. Uh, So anyway, Spice only occurs on one planet, Arrakis, which is like, it it would perfectly fit into Warhammer as a hell world. It is is a complete desert. It is a nightmare to be on there. Everything breaks down really quickly. Uh, Water is very hard to come by, very expensive, and Spice only exists on that one planet. So it's a really big deal to have the Imperial right to mine spice on that planet. And when the when the movie and the novel opens, uh, spice has been mined for the last little while by House Harkonnen, or in the, these new movies, Harkonnen. So the pronunciations are going to be a little bit different depending on uh, what era you join this fandom.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, House Har- Harkonnen has been mining the spice. They've just been removed by decree of the emperor, and House Atreides is going to take over mining the spice. Now, this is a big deal for a couple of reasons. Those two houses have been at a cold or hot war for hundreds of years because of long lasting stuff that goes back into history. Um, so at, at, at a glance, it it seems like it's a slight against the Harkonnens and the empire is giving something really good to the Atreides. But it's all a trap. Uh, the emperor is afraid of Duglido getting too popular. So he's luring them in. Uh, He's gonna give troops to the Harkonnens to overthrow and kill off all the Atreides while they're there and sort of reestablish the status quo. Uh, House Atreides is the Duke, Leto. His concubine, not his wife, very important, is the Lady Jessica, who's a member of the Bene Gesserit. And these are women who have their own secret society that is devoted to guiding humanity through breeding. And if that sounds weird, it is very, very weird. I mean, that's eugenics. Hooray,
0: eugenics!
2: (laughs) Also, that concubine part didn't come through at all in the movie. (laughs) Right. So it's a big deal that, yeah, Leto never married her. She had to stay a concubine for political reasons and all this other stuff. Um, Jessica was ordered by the Bene Gesserit under no no uncertain circumstances she had to bear an atreides daughter for their breeding program that's been going on for for hundreds of generations she had to bear a daughter she fell in love with the Duke which she wasn't also supposed to do and he really wanted a son so she bore him a son they can so Bene Gesserit, they they take spice and they have like ultimate control over their bodies so the women can decide what sex they're child is
1: going to be real quick just because i'm i'm obsessing <laughs> over it in my mind the yeah. spi- the spice um, yes it only comes from arrakis do they i know that sci-fi overly obsessing with the minutia of how things like that is was less common back then and is more a, a facet of terrible fandoms honestly from the 70s onward <laughs> but do they ever give an explanation to why or why spice can't be transplanted To grow to something. I got the impression from the movie that it like maybe the sandworms directly have something to do with its production in the sand, but they were not very clear about it. And
2: the movie doesn't have to be clear. This is me just being curious. Right. Um so I'm gonna say yes (laughs) without going further. Okay, so there is an explanation, explanation. but it's somewhat (laughs) spoilery to say it. Yes. Okay, we'll leave it at that then. But yes, it it does it has something to do with uh with the sandworms and the whole ecology of the planet, specifically.
1: Okay. All um, right. That
2: actually becomes a, a really important plot point in some of the sequel novels.
1: Alright, so anyway, so the Lady Jessica okay. uses her special Bene Gesserit spice biology powers to make a son for Duke Leto.
2: Yes, and, and not all of the stuff that Bene Gesserit does is, is solely with the spice. They just have a lot of like cool training programs and stuff, but that's part of it. So yeah, so she has a son, Leto, and she raises him, training him as though he is a Bene Gesserit. So... Like, they they do a thing in the movie with... the They have an ability called the voice, where they can essentially um, implant suggestions into other people, force them to do things. So she trains him on how to do that, and that's, like, that's a big no-no. You're not supposed to teach that to outsiders, and especially not women. Yeah, not to to be overly simplifying,
1: but it's a Jedi mind trick, essentially, right? Yeah. yeah. Except it's even stronger, because I remember the Jedi ever commanding someone to kill someone else.
2: (laughs) Yeah, and actually, and that's one of the things that uh I really like the way they did it in the David Lynch movie versus how they did it in Dune part 1 um there's a there's a really cool scene when Jessica and and Paul are they wake up and they've been essentially they're they've been kidnapped they're in a Harkonnen uh ornithopter and they're trying to get away and in part 1 it's like very direct like she Paul manages to use the voice to get one of the guys to undo the gag on his mom and then she just tells him what to do <clears throat> in the in the david lynch movie they play it as though like paul paul issues direct commands with the voice and it doesn't work very well but the way jessica uses it is like she puts the commands in context which makes it which like i immediately picked up on like oh that makes it so much easier for that to get into your mind because in that one there are multiple harkonnens in the in the ornithopter and she says you don't need to fight over me and that instantly puts the suggestion that, oh, they do. She's something worth fighting over. I need to kill this other guy. And it's like mm-hmm. a really small thing, but it's, anyway, it's a cool little note. Okay. Um, so, she's so, yes, so she's training
1: Paul. Yes. So she's
2: training Paul in how to do, you know, like, cool stuff. And then uh, the Atreides get the message that you, you're you going to Arrakis, you're going to take over. They say, okay, they're going to do it. Um, and then a full reverend mother of the Bene Gesserit shows up on the Atreides planet, Caladan. By the way, and,
1: Cal- yeah. Caladan. just because you mentioned it. The movie yeah. made it look to me like, I don't know, like Ireland or something. Like a lot of green pastures and a lot of rain. Is that... So, so it seems like a very opposite of what Arrakis is.
2: <laughs> yes, yeah. Very, very much purposely so. I think they shot it in like Norway or something. But yeah, very... A lot of water stuff, yeah. Okay, go on. Um, so the Reverend Mother comes. She's, she's like one of the top Bene Gesserit's. And she's got a bunch... she's got even more powers. And she's a truth-sayer, so she can instantly tell if somebody's telling the truth or not, whatever they say. Um, and she says, <clears throat> basically, like, I'm here to test Paul, and, like, this visibly freaks out Jessica. And she takes him in, and Paul undergoes the Gomjabar test. A very iconic scene. He puts his hand in a box, and he doesn't know what's in the box, and the Reverend Mother has a needle at his neck. And she says that the needle is poisoned, but it only kills animals. And then Paul's like, well, are you suggesting I'm an animal? And she says, well, we'll see. And that's what the test is. So the test is basically you put your hand in a box, you can't see inside, and the box administers pain. And as a if you're a human, you should be able to consciously override signals that your body is sending you. Um, and that's and if you're not if you're an animal then you can't like an animal will chew off its leg to get out of a trap that sort of thing. Um, Paul succeeds at the test is is crowned human, <laughs> um, and then they have a little bit of talk about the quizots Haderach.
1: <laughs> By the way, I love now... <laughs> the concept of this scene. I totally see it working like Gangbusters on paper. Mm-hmm. In the movie, it felt goofy. And not in a like Short. fun goofy way. It felt very disjointed. From no, the, this movie the rest doesn't have
0: fun goofy. That's kind of the problem I ran into. Like, it's beautiful, but it's too damn yeah. self serious.
1: So again, I don't want to be. I don't want to be negative. Yeah. So I'm gonna. I'm gonna follow up that statement by asking: Did the David Lynch scene flow better? <laughs> it's
2: so much better. Okay. In that movie, you get cutaways to Paul's hand in like a disembodied place. And there's fire, and the flesh starts melting off, and then when it cuts back to him cringing, like it makes a lot more sense, okay, as to what what's going on. Um, so I'm gonna say yes. Cool. Uh, so then, so then the the Reverend Mother talks a little bit about like, okay, like you're you're kind of a special dude. Um, have you have you had dreams that seem important? And like he tells her about some dreams because yes, Paul does have. At this point, Paul has a little bit of a prophetic nature to him. He's he's still figuring it out. He's got some dreams that sometimes come true, um, but not exactly how he dreams them, which is really interesting. Um, the the Reverend Mother walks Jessica outside, and she talks about the Quizatz Haderach. Uh, now, I want to ask you guys, watching that movie, do you know what the Quizatz Haderach is, and and what it means? <laughs> I I mean, watching it, I got the
1: impression that because in the movie. She, the way the mother, the reverend mother says to Lady Jessica, she says something like, you think that he might be the, whatever that mm. word is. <laughs> yeah. so, so I, without knowing what it was, and admittedly having some background knowledge about Dune from, you know, like, videos I'd seen online and people referencing stuff, I got yep. the impression that he is whatever their religious sect or for lack of a term, their cult, is their, <laughs> is their Jesus figure that they're waiting for. Or maybe not waiting for because you said it's a eugenics program. Uh, but sure. So maybe they're trying to create. But anyway, I figured that in my perspective, I picked up on enough context clues to be like, okay, whatever word she's saying, that's mm-hmm. whatever their savior figure that they're waiting for or trying to make is. I don't know what that means, but I think yeah. that's what it is.
2: Okay, yeah. Yeah, because I I'm having so much back knowledge of all this stuff yeah i mean i watch a movie like this and i'm you know picking out all the little details but yeah i always wonder like oh what does what does this mean to someone who isn't familiar with all the stuff before uh, but yes so essentially all of the there's some interesting stuff especially in the novel about the bene gesserit their power really comes from being women it's a it's a very feminine earth-based power as far as like guiding humanity giving birth um Influence like this kind of stuff. They're like, they're always like the power behind the throne, that kind of stuff. And their breeding program is yes, it's to make basically a male reverend mother who would have access to all of their powers, but also the stuff that they don't have access to. They talk about in their minds. Okay, so uh, really, very briefly, uh, the reverend mother, to become a reverend mother in the Bene Gesserit, you have to take the water of life, um, which I'm not going to talk much more about because that'll be in part two. Um, but I've it's heard a special
1: plays an important role in part two. <laughs> yeah.
2: Yes, so it's a special cer- ceremony ritual that you have to undergo that is potentially very deadly. Uh, but if you survive it, you become a reverend mother and you open your mind to uh, genetic memory, so you can remember and you have access. Basically, you can talk to all. Well, Benedict can talk to and access all of the memories. Of all of the women going back in their matrilineal line, okay. they cannot access male, male d- ancestors.
0: And now the-, the wanting a female makes sense.
2: Well, also
1: it, it implies that they're is cult the right word because it, it seems really culty, but it seems like they have legitimacy. And usually, the difference between a cult and a religion is just legitimacy. So, what's the right word here?
2: Uh, cult is not a not cult is not a bad definition for it. They're also it's more like well, um, hold on. what on the-
0: is the official religion of this? Because they're also
1: up. kind of a political party, from what I can tell, they seem yeah. to have influence on the emperor
2: to some degree. Yes, they. I mean, what do yes. they
0: all into this whole system?
2: Okay, so uh, okay, so hold on. Real briefly, let me answer each question. So the Bene Gesserit, they're they're not a religion because they don't they believe in humanity. They don't have they don't like believe in in gods or deities. They. Well, mostly. Um, they're, they're just trying to usher humanity into better and better stages. They exploit religion, and they use religion on other people essentially as a weapon.
1: <laughs> okay. Which,
2: for good and for evil, um, just like religion is in the real world. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so, like, they, they, they don't believe their own bullshit in a lot of ways, is kind of how you could look at it. So um, they, they use the trappings of religion to further their agenda? Yes, that is a very good way of putting it. Okay, um, that doesn't sound
0: familiar at all. <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay, so the Bene Gesserit, which that description means that while cult and religion both have truth to them as statements, they're not really accurate, so I'm just going to try to remember just to call them the Bene Gesserit. Anyway, yeah. so it's more like, to answer what I think Ulrich said, it sounds less like that they wanted to you know, keep things feminine for the pure sake of femininity, and more like they figured the first male that would be born as a Bene Gesserit would be a big deal, and they want probably control over that uh, yep. because that's going to be their their figure that they're going to assert control with.
2: Yes, and yeah, and and so part part of the reason why they're so upset with Jessica is that yes, they are they're fixated that their breeding program will create the Kwisatz Haderach and they and from the minute it's born, they will have total control over it. And they clearly do not have total control over Paul. Jessica is keeping him separate. She's training him. She's kind of going rogue on all this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, going back to religion. Religion is a huge part of Dune in the novels, not so much in the movie. But well, um, it
1: starts. Cre- I mean, with the Fremen, it starts creeping in there at the movie. But go yes,
2: on. yeah. So there is a state religion of the Empire of Humanity, and it is, it's a it's a mix. So what Frank Herbert did, and it's it's honestly, it's brilliant and it works so well in the books is that a bunch of the religions that we have today exist in this future, but they've melded together. So on Arrakis and there are philosophers who belong to the Zen Sunni school. So it's half Zen, half Sunni religion mashed together. And there are, um, I forget, there's like a, a, a sect that's part Jewish, part something. And so he mashed and mixed, and like there's all this really cool religious stuff that's not really in the movies, which these movies, at say, least, which is fine. I mean, forgive my, my
1: ignorance, any listeners who know more about this, but my understanding is that something like that happened in the real world to what we commonly refer to as Hinduism as a result hmm. of English colonialization of the, the general area, that it was actually a bunch of uh, different beliefs with overlapping ideas because of you know, geographical culture, but that Hinduism, as we understand it today, was basically a forceful merging mm-hmm. of those various ideas, uh, which is why, funny enough, modern Hinduism can technically encompass all world beliefs, which I always think is fascinating. But,
2: hmm. interesting. Yeah, that's. I I don't know that much about it. Yeah, that sounds cool. Anyway, uh, just a, so... a fun
1: side thing. That's what it sounded like when you were describing it.
2: Yeah. So the so like the main religious text for the empire is the Orange Catholic Bible. And there's a lot in the books about how that Bible came to be, and all the bloodshed that it caused coming up with the wording of it, and, like, there's some really cool stuff about that. Um, but yeah, so, so like, there is, like, a, a state religion, but different planets and different people do have their own religions also. It's not, like, one mandated thing everywhere. Um, you see, like, uh, Gurney uh, will spin off religious quotes from the Orange Catholic Bible every so often, stuff like that. Um, so... Going off of the religion part, uh, not entirely chronologically, but we find out also in the movie that, so one of the ways that Bene Gesserit use religion is they have a whole arm of the Bene Gesserit is dedicated to something called the Missionaria Protectiva, and they don't use that term in the movie, but they've essentially, they've sent out women over the millennia to far-flung planets, and they've used them to insert very specific prophecies into local religions and local customs in the case that at some far distant point in the future, a Bene Gesserit will find herself going there and need help. And she can exploit... The local populace.
0: You know, I got hey, that. that's fucked up, but that's cool. Yeah, yeah. I,
1: I got a little bit of that from again. The the mother reverend says something to the lady Jessica in the movie along the lines of "We've already we've already seeded the mm-hmm. you know the work on Arrakis for your arrival or something like that." Yeah,
2: um, and so like it's different stories on different planets depending on what the culture there you know honors and things is important. And then you know if Abena finds herself there, she sort of has to figure out. Oh wait, shit. What is, what is the myth here and how can I fit into it and exploit it? So we do see that when Jessica is talking to, um, when they get to Arrakis and she's talking to the applicants for the housekeeper job and she she can tell just by looking at them which one is it's going to be and then she talks to her and then like she notices that she has a weapon under her clothing because she can tell and then she has to think about wait what are the specific words I need to use to activate their prophecy it includes me. <laughs>
1: you know, that's a
2: really cool idea and I feel like if I
1: understood that that was what was happening in that scene, I would have yeah. been way more into that scene <laughs> because that yes. idea that that she has to mentally be like, "All right, what do I have to say in order to mm-hmm. exploit this person the what this person believes?" Because in the movie it just comes off like she happens to fit the prophecy. Not that she's actively trying to manipulate the situation to fit the
2: prophecy. That's yeah.
1: that's a very different emotional tone. And I'm far more interested in that.
2: <laughs> yeah, now now to be fair, as as the move as the story goes on, it's both. They her and Paul do fulfill the prophecy also, but but yeah, there's there's this really cool section where she's just like, okay, wait, what what are the stories here? How do I fit into this? What things do I have to do to yeah to like what keywords do I have to use, what actions do I have to do to to trigger those things.
1: That that sounds like a storyline way up your alley, Ulrich, specifically.
0: See, that's the thing. Everything about Doom when it's described like this should work for me. Deep world (laughs) inspired all the sci-fi I love. Mm -hmm. Again, I jumped multiple, I can do that all fine. Anytime I come across I'm like, holy shit, this is as dry (laughs) as the planet it's set on. And it does, it right? commits the ultimate sci-fi sin, or this is the ultimate book sin in my opinion. Of It just assumes that you know what the setting is, and it's like, you're either with me and you'll catch up, or not, like, I need an on-ramp, you can't yeah. just throw all this shit at me and go, how come you aren't keeping up? Also, Scott, I know you're a name guy, what the fuck is with the names in this setting? <laughs> <laughs> We're hitting both uh, ends of the creative spectrum?
2: Yes. Um, there are all sorts of stories about why Frank Herbert picked the names he did. Oh, I should add. So Frank Herbert, um, very interesting guy. He was he was into a lot of things. He wasn't super educated, but he was the kind of guy who would like go and do a ton of research on his own. So obviously he got really into ecology and um, different types of uh, in, of weather patterns and things like that. He was also, by all accounts, very much into mushrooms and psilocybin.
0: Well, that tracks
2: with the whole spice. Yeah, yeah. Yes. I was about to say, and, uh, psilocybin
1: uh, <laughs> does, has made some creative
2: endeavors. <laughs> yeah, so that could be, you know, so anytime you try to drill too far down, it's like, why the hell did he do this? It's like, well, I don't know, maybe it was just on mushrooms that day. <laughs> but uh, but yes, there are some really, really interesting and fun and funny names Uh, in in these books. And a lot of them you can find in the book, Naming Your Little Geek.
0: (laughs) Yeah, except you don't have an explanation for Duncan Idaho.
2: That has haunted
0: (laughs) me forever. I'm like, why? Why is his name Duncan Idaho? Where did that come from? And I get to your book and your book's like, I don't don't fucking know
2: that. (laughs)
1: Nobody really knows. I, I realize I'm walking on very dangerous ground when I say this. So keep in mind intent here. I'm just trying to question something. I do know that, okay, you've set the This on a desert planet with mm. uh, an indigenous people that are at odds with the colonizers. And you've got a bunch of names that sound vaguely Middle Eastern in ways that make me feel a little uncomfortable, but I don't know if that's
2: intentional or not. Oh, yeah, no, no, it it's it's completely intentional. Um, and there are there are there are names, there are words, there are entire languages in the book. That are based on real world uh, Middle Eastern places and and things, yeah. And in in fact, there's way more than what than yeah. what the movie shows. And I guess my reason uh, for
1: bringing that up is that it's the kind yeah. of thing that, again, because of Dune's pedigree, despite my personal bouncing off of it, as Ulrich put it, I have a lot of respect for it. So it's one of those things where I'm like, okay, my surface level interaction with this aspect of it feels skeevy. But I'm betting there's stuff going on here that I just am not aware of, since I haven't experienced it. And I'm hoping that the general literary critical consensus is that he's doing something good with these sort of cultural
2: parallels. Yes, from from all so from all accounts, the man Frank Herbert, like he again, he researched um, indigenous peoples. Uh, he had Native American friends who he talked to a lot about creating some of the fremen stuff. Um, a lot of it is based on. So there's a lot that's based on like the the Lawrence of Arabia story. Um, there's it's got a lot big
0: that... Lawrence of Arabia
2: vibes. Definitely. Yes, for sure. Um, and yeah, there's a lot of um, again like some of the words and the sayings are from uh, like Bedouin culture. There's um, <clears throat> the the Turkic rebellion against the Russian Empire in the Caucasus. Like that played a lot in in his research and the stuff that he used. Um, so yes, it. I would say that. The overall consensus is that Herbert used these references respectfully, um, and that he truly does portray the Fremen as a, a noble people, and again, not like noble savages, but because they do, like, they have a whole society that outsiders are completely unaware of when the movie and the, the novel start.
1: No, that that um, moment that with you right there is a great example of why I'm like, it's difficult to even critically talk about this properly. Yeah, sure.
2: <laughs> yes. <laughs> Um, yes, and again, like it goes further than so. Okay, in the novel, and they did this in the David Lynch movie, and they notably did not do this in Part One, which again, like we haven't gotten to the big action yet. But the the word jihad is used a lot. I know that I because uh, Thug Notes
1: did some quotes from the okay. actual book, and he talked about, and I remember seeing yep. that word jihad used frequently, and I which I thought was interesting.
2: And, yes, and it is a again for like for dune experts it, it felt very noticeable that that word was not used in dune part 1 well, now again we haven't gotten to that kind of stuff happening yet but we we've heard, we've heard I think they use crusade um, they talked a little bit about like up uh, you know the violence that's coming so it'll be interesting to see what kind of terminology they use
1: well it, it makes sense since dune. america you know has a not great history with that particular word so sure. at this at this yeah. point, so I, I totally understand from a business CEO standpoint why they would have wanted to replace that with you know crusade, despite mm-hmm. having very similar connotations at the end of the day.
2: <laughs> oh, for for sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, th- we're we're dealing with a holy war and all of the 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 things that come along with that.
1: Anyway, because I know that with the how the three of us we can go in directions forever. Back to yes. so we were we were at. They've uh, they've been given Arrakis, and we were talking about yep. the training of Paul. Continue.
2: Yeah. Okay. Uh, so basically, they go to Arrakis. They take over. Um, it, there are endless traps and problems that the Harkonnens have left for them that they're trying to overcome. Um, they are betrayed. One of their core, Atreides, people, has betrayed them, which seemingly is impossible. And it, again, this was not something they super emphasized in part one. It's their... Family doctor, Dr. Yue, who comes from the Souk, S-U-K, school of doctors that has, essentially, they are unimpeachable. They are, nothing could possibly be done to subvert one of these doctors. I I was about to ask, because in the movie,
1: Mm -hmm. when Dr. Yue betrays uh, Duke Leto, his explanation is that uh, Harkonnens have his wife... And while I get from a writing perspective why that is an easy answer, I had mm-hmm. a weird feeling, and you can tell me if the book, how the book handles this, and a weird feeling that that felt oddly uh, mundane compared to the rest of the story. Like it felt like such a modern answer to a writing problem
2: that didn't yeah, fit into everything else. It's definitely it's. It's a big deal in the book. Um, and it's like, it's a huge shock to everybody who hears it. And it has repercussions down the line, too, of like, everybody who wasn't right there to witness what happened, every, they all accuse each other of being this, this, the saboteur, the one who gave them up, because it couldn't possibly be him, because Suk doctors can never, you know, be turned to any other cause. Um, his wife, Sawana so his wife, was a Bene Gesserit, So there's some question there as to, like, did she clue him into like bigger stuff, and was was he like a little bit more awakened than most people? Um, obviously, he deeply loved her; she loved him. Um, but yes, the Harkonnens, uh and again, from all indications, she's long dead. They did, they just used they just used the fact that they had taken her to uh, to subvert Doctor Yue. But um, well, that's that's
1: another quick question too, which is. I don't know how to phrase this properly. The Harkonnens in the in Dune part 1 have this so ridiculously over the top we are bad guy energy <laughs> yeah. that I now I'm not inherently against that. I love me some GI Joe-esque like defining of your characters. But again, with the it, it's weird because now that I mentioned now that we're talking about it, I feel like Dune the movie anyway keeps almost crossing the the line into like goofy camp. But just, mm-hmm. just not quite doing it. And this feels like a case where, like, just look at Batista and it was Gary Oldman, right, playing them? Uh, if it's not, it looked like
2: whoever's playing oh, the, um, uh, Skarsgard, the. Oh, Stellan Skarsgård, the elder. Skarsgård. Yeah, yeah. I'm just so but used in a, to, under I mean, under like a literal ton of makeup. Yeah. I'm just so used to Oldman being covered by so much sure. makeup he's
1: unrecognizable. But I can see Skarsgård St- now that you say it. Point yeah. is, the two of them look so ridiculously over the top evil. <laughs> I. Yeah. Yeah. yep
0: <laughs> that's where i disconnect with the movie. like guys they, they they can't expect me to take this seriously look at what they're doing to batista they are yeah. five minutes away from breaking into a disney villain song and the <laughs> villain guy is like covered in black and
1: floating everywhere like a fucking grim reaper with a skull head because he's got no hair like
0: <laughs> ultra serious very grounded side are they described that way in the book <laughs>
2: So, yes, they're okay. The Harkonnens are disgusting in the book. They're gross people. Okay, but there's there are reasons for it, um, both on a macro and a and a personal level. Um, they they're sort of in 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 many ways they're the opposite of the Atreides. But it's because th- there's basically there, there's backstory for all of it. Why there why that is. While the, while the Atreides grew up on planet Caladan, that's like a, a paradise, essentially, um, the Harkonnens have grown up on Gidi Prime and the, the planets there that are just, they're hell holes. Think like, um, uh, they're, they're like hive worlds, basically. Uh, okay. But like, just everything's filthy and covered in crap. And actually, th- that's kind of an interesting thing they do, is that all the Harkonnens we see in the movies so far are completely hairless, which immediately jumped out to me, and they're like, oh, it's a lice thing. Their, their home is so disgusting, they all have to completely shave off all their hair.
1: Oh. I don't How know the if that... detail.
2: Yeah, I don't know if that's that. translated.
1: Add that add that to the list of things that we we're, we're keeping of really cool in concept wish the movie made this so that I understood it
2: without having to be told it. <laughs> sure. Well now and and that's my interpretation. I don't I don't know that that's the yeah,
0: but it's it feels deliberate enough that it wasn't just like yeah. we're yeah. Gonna make them bald cause Yeah, bald but people we only are get
1: people. we only get one sequence in the whole movie of what seemingly their home world. It's all inside what looks like a big okay. I admit cuz I'm very biased in my my sci-fi. I looked mm. at the out, out exterior shot, and I was like this looks like Kronos from Star Trek. <laughs> and then sure. the, the interior shots look like Ridley Scott's Alien. That's yes. that's all I thought. I didn't get like trash yep. heap <laughs> kind of vibes.
2: Yeah. Um so one and very very quickly cuz it's a it's a side tangent, but one of the one of the issues that a lot of people have with this movie. And again, like, th- this movie's great, it looks super cool, um, but one of the things is a lot of the, the the different houses, the different main factions, there are differences to their looks, but it still feels way too similar. Um, the David Lynch movie did a fantastic job of different houses, different planets look so completely different their outfits, their uniforms, you could immediately tell, oh, this person is with the Atreides, this person is from the Harkonnens. And this always brings me back to Warhammer. Because you think about humans in Warhammer forty K, think of the Vostroians versus the Cadians. Like they're these people have been on these planets for thousands of years. They're gonna look different. They're gonna have different colors, different patterns, different schemes. And I, I just did Lynch, a Google
1: search of David yeah. Lich Harkonen. To to see. And it looks like the Baron is covered in
2: pustules. Yes. And again, that's that is from the books and there's a and there's a reason for that. Okay. I'm saying that that already conveys more
1: what you've described than the (laughs) Yeah. There's there's
2: there's a there's a big thing with with the Baron. That I it, it's going to be a big moment in part two, so I, I I can't spoil it. But okay, we'll we'll talk about it later. We'll do a wrap up after part two. <laughs> yeah,
1: obviously.
2: Um, okay, so getting back, um, yeah. So the the Harkonnens are let in essentially. The Harkonnens, notably with a huge detachment of the Emperor's troops, the Sardacar, which are that's like a that's a huge deal because that's like his personal army. They're not supposed to be used by other people. Um, In the novel, they're actually, they're there in Harkonnen uniforms, it's like a super secret thing that they're doing, because this is the Emperor putting his weight behind one of these nobles, which is not supposed to happen. but again, he's doing it because he's worried about Duke Leto becoming too popular amongst the nobles, blah, 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 blah. I like, yeah, can take a explain quick...
0: that to me afterwards, because in the movie it's just like, oh, no, there's these other slightly different-looking dudes. Oh, yeah. it, I got, it, I got so, that from it,
1: the movie. I mean, they have that whole sequence where they're like, you know, Sardacor and the Emperor hmm. does... Uh, what do they say? That the Duke's voice is getting too loud or something like yeah. that? I
0: so, kind of got that, but it's just like, and here's a third faction of dudes dressed in <laughs> kind of generic sci-fi which that's a bigger issue in the medium entirely of mm-hmm. we are not doing unique, interesting designs for our sci-fi anymore. Well, I, I, will, copy pasted.
1: I will admit, because I totally yeah. understand, I think, what they're doing with the Sardic Corps. I do think it was a very much example of tell, don't show. Because mm-hmm. I, they I didn't just, tell very well. Yeah, they just... <laughs> well, I got the impression they just tell us that, oh, these are the best soldiers in the galaxy. The, like, the second best are the... The Atreides guys. That's what I got from right. their conversations.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's yeah. there. My problem with it kind of which, was, is like, this is expecting me to know this inherently. Which reminds it's just, me, Scott. like Random group of dudes over here. Random group of dudes <laughs> over here. Third random group of dudes dressed similarly, but in slightly darker colors. Yeah,
1: but that reminds me. We mentioned his name earlier, but uh, is it to come up in the actual, like, primer? Uh, can you explain Duncan Idaho? Because... Jason Momoa is the well, the only person in the movie seemingly having a good time, so I'm curious about his character.
2: <laughs> yeah, so um, so the Atreides, there's like the core actual family members, and then they're basically like they're um, uh, they're like chiefs of staff. So among those are so there's a Mentat, which we don't talk about much because they really sideline them in this first movie. Um, Mentat, okay. So one of, the, one of the other reasons why Dune is, is talked about with 40K are there's a, in both scenarios, in both uh, worlds, there's a prohibition against AI and thinking machines. So one of the big things that Frank Herbert wanted to show is in this far, far, far distant future, without an over-reliance on technology, how can people, how can humans evolve into doing different things? So humans guide the ships through through uh, space. Um, mentats are humans who are naturally gifted a- at logic and math, and then they're trained to become human computers. Um, and that's basically all you really need to know. But um, anyway, so the so the trades have um, have a mentat. He's the one like the Duke asks him a question, and his eyes roll back in his head, and he spits out a calculation. And they've done a bunch of memes about it. And oh yeah, I remember mine. that. Um, okay. the, and then, and again, the, the Baron has one also, Piter, um, played by, um, David Dasomachian, who looks his name is really Piter? weird. It, Piter, P-I-T-E-R.
1: Okay. Sorry. Cause my brain instantly went to Batman and Piter-Man.
2: So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. So anyway, so they're like, okay, so they've got that. And then, um, they've got the doctor. So yes. And then there's Duncan Idaho. So Duncan Idaho is, uh, he's a sword master. So there are, there's, like, this order of warriors. There, there's a whole backstory to them. But he's, like, the personal guard to the Atreides, as well as he's in charge of, like, training all of their troops and training Paul. Um, he also likes to fly ornithopters in this one. Which are the bug Fine. ships, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, but, yes, he's, he's sort of, like, he's in the court of the Atreides. Uh, he's very much beloved by the Duke and by Paul, um, he's just he's like a really good fighter that's the main thing
1: has Frank Herbert ever given a reason why he named him Duncan Idaho
2: no okay. <laughs> not that anybody there, can really there, figure it out no
0: reason. like I said that's like one thing yeah. I know about Dune no one knows it's okay. just the most random and, in their name
2: yeah and it's and Duncan Idaho is really really interesting for the broader scope of Dune because and this is this is technically this is spoilers but it's not going to matter for part 2 it's spoilers for the the old novel series um, and then whoever who knows however they go along with the movie but in Do- in the novel dune Duncan Idaho is in it for like a total of 20 pages oh and then he and he dies and that's 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 it he's gone duncan comes back in a later book as a clone oh. and then plays a massive role in later book it's it's bizarre it's crazy so it'll be it's really interesting to think though like if they do that with these... If these movies continue on, like, we could get Duncan Idaho-centered movies eventually. Like, it's it's well, really weird.
0: Isn't there a rumored part three in production now?
2: There is, yes. Um, It, it shouldn't... Well, actually, yeah, I guess Dunk, he might come back in that one, maybe, depending on how they do it. By the way, s-
1: side note, I only just found out recently that Dune is a series. I thought it was one book. I didn't even know there were multiple... Students.
0: Yes, it yeah. goes and on by his son right like there's all the books that he writes and then his son comes and yeah. writes some books
2: yeah so so Frank wrote six books and then his son Brian um <laughs> so it's a really interesting story but Brian announced to the world that he found a treasure trove of Frank's notes about further books and then got together with um oh, what's that other sci-fi writer's name I forget his name but they and the two of them have written like a 1000 more books oh. it's it's insane how many books they've written since okay and they are let's say they are of varying quality so also like 40k <laughs> yeah yes and it is you could say that the more books they continue to churn out the sort of It lessens that universe bit by bit, which is an argument you could definitely make. Um, But what's really interesting about all that is that he's never shared these supposed notes and treasure trove that he's found. Uh, So it's always a question of, like, did you really find all these notes or are you just making all this shit up? (laughs) Okay, so anyway, we're back on Arrakis. Sonicor
1: and Harkonnens have attacked.
2: Yeah, so the Atreides are screwed. Uh, They're they're almost completely wiped out. The one... So uh, Dr. Yue did two quote-unquote nice things uh he implants a poison tooth in the duke because he knows that the baron is going to want him close and the bar and the duke might be able to bite on the tooth and kill the baron um that fails unfortunately uh but he arranges for jessica and paul to be taken out into the desert and then hopefully they can escape which of course they do using the voice um, back at home, uh, the Duke bites down on the tooth, manages to kill Piter, um, the Baron's Mentat, but doesn't kill the Baron. Um, Paul and Jessica manage to escape. They go out into the desert, and they start having desert adventures, which consist of, very briefly, um, they, they, start getting, they start getting exposed to a lot of spice, which triggers Paul's uh, abilities and his prophecies. Mm-hmm. in his waking dreams and then they end up meeting Stilgar who is the um he's like the chief of one of the big tribes of the Fremen. Javier and... Bardem
1: right in the new one?
2: Oh, I'm sorry what was that? Yeah, oh yes yes yeah Javier Bardem yes um and uh and then they are accepted into his tribe at the very end of the of part one.
1: Oh, here's something you can clear up for me. Even watching it twice, I wasn't sure if I was interpreting these events right. Because we see in part one, he has these visions of a friend who will help him. And then, I think, right, that's the mm-hmm. same actor who then plays the the Fremen who challenges him to a deathmatch. So then he kills the guy that his visions had before told him was going to train him. Is that, is that what happened?
2: Yes. Okay. okay. So, and again, I like I I'm tr- I'm I'm trying to stay out of spoiler well, it, territory. It's just
1: that even from a one-way perspective, that illustrates, at least to me as an audience, that's saying his visions are not in stone because his visions told him this guy's gonna train you, and that's not the case. Or you could argue that the thing that he's trained him to do is to kill someone. So he's the first person to kill him. So I guess you could say the promise that the the vision did come true, but again, just not in the way that it seemed like in the vision. Okay, I'm second-guessing myself Axel,
2: No, no, no. What you just said is a thousand percent perfect. That is exactly what you are meant to take away from what you saw. That's, I, I And I wonder if people got that and you have you have restored my faith in humanity.
1: Because <laughs> <laughs> well, I is... admit, I was confused while watching it because I wasn't 100% sure that that was the same actor from the vision I had seen sure. 10 minutes earlier. So I was like, wait yep. a minute. And then once I thought it was, I started trying to think about what that mean, and that's the conclusion yeah, no, I just that, gave
2: that's, to you. know that, no, it, that's, that's exactly how I, I, I read what they're trying to do in the movie. Um, that's, yeah, that's perfect, yes. Okay. Uh, and there's, there's a specific part of that, there's a specific terminology they use, and, and I won't spoil it, but I'm dying to see how and if they use it at the beginning of part two and what that's going to mean. Because they they drop a single word in Paul's vision of Jameis, That's the name of the character. And if if you are if you are knowledgeable about the book, it like immediately breaks your heart. In, like in a good way, like in a super emotional way. And I am really hoping they bring that into part two and use it and not just throw it out for. The sake of time
1: <laughs> side side question that i thought of a bit ago do they and again if this is spoilers you can just say it, whatever is there a reason the baron is the only guy who flies like i figured it's just tech but is there why does he fly why does he float does it matter
2: okay so uh it it only to show his his physical issues so the ba-
1: <sighs> I, just, I just wondered i was yeah, like okay no, i don't know anyone else it,
2: physically flying so it's something yeah. special to him now they they have shown so they have um, it's like repulsor tech I, I think they actually use that in the I think they it says repulsor repulse something like that but um, it, they have hover technology you see you actually see it a few times in the movie with the with the lights um, okay. they have like especially on Caladan they have these little light pods that sort of float around and like follow people at some at some points um, but yes so the Baron has um these like this uh, suspenser that's what it's called suspenser not okay. suspenser so he has suspensers to aid in his mobility um let's just say that the baron in his youth was the perfect picture of health and athleticism and super strong active healthy and something happened that made him decline and make his outside look like his inside.
1: I wonder if that means, because I've seen the trailer for Dune Part 2, and there's seemingly a, a new Harkonnen character who looks like a young warrior person. And since, again, I, I know a little bit about the rest of the book, I, I mm-hmm. you know some things, but I have no idea who that character is.
2: And now you got me wondering, is that like lashback to young Baron or something? I, we'll I, I will say it, it's not that. Th- okay. that's a, that. That's a great thought. It, it's not that. Um, and again, like, what I'm what I'm skirting is almost certainly not going to be in part two, but... I'm used to skirting I, think it's so I okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> By
1: the way, so, I just recently had my girlfriend get in my face a bit about me doing that, and she's just not a fan when I do that. So. <laughs> uh,
2: but, but yes, there's, there's a, a very specific part of the Baron's history that made him the way he is. Um, and again, sort of to it, it, it's more obvious in the novel and in the David Lynch movie, um, but so that his outward disgusting appearance matches his how he is on the inside. Um, okay. But it was done to him for a reason. And and again, like I I don't mm. there's so, there's there's like there's a really big impactful thing that. We're gonna learn. Okay, let's the shelf theory. that. So yeah,
1: we can talk about that later. There's uh, there's at least one more very important thing about the setting we have yet to touch on in your primer, which is the worms. I mentioned them earlier, but we haven't actually talked about them. What's so. the
0: deal with the big ass worms?
1: <laughs> and uh, I also yes. want your particular opinion on their size in the movie versus their size in old illustrations. But go on. <laughs> oh yeah, I mean
2: it. The bigger, the better. <laughs> When it comes to, when it comes to, uh, yes, they should just be, they should be absolutely, uh, you know, you know, you read in 40k, like, like transhuman dread, like when people see space Marines, like they just freeze up and they just can't understand what this creature is in front of them. Like, that scene of of sandworm should be, like, the most terrifying thing anybody could undergo.
1: Which, again, I can't imagine anyone listening to this doesn't know what we're talking about, but if you somehow avoided all the trailers. Also, (laughs) Arrakis has giant
2: Tremor-style sandworms, but with bigger mouths. Yeah. Um, Their sandworms are unique to Arrakis, just like the Spice. Hmm. Uh, and, (laughs) And, yes, they have this... There's a massive amount of information that Frank Herbert gives about their ecology and how they work. But yeah, essentially, the main points are um, anywhere you're out on the open desert, you are susceptible to a sandworm coming and eating you. So all of the human habitations are in very specific parts of the planet that have a lot of rocks that either you can build on top of or the rocks sort of block off the open desert like like a sandbar almost. Mm Mm-hmm or I guess like a reverse sandbar. Yeah. Um, and yes, uh, sandworms are attracted to anything rhythmic, including people's footsteps. So the Fremen are talked about as having this thing called sandwalking where they, this is a big term from the book, where they walk without rhythm. Um, it's like this weird way of like basically turning off your brain so you can just, it's almost like, it's almost like walking as a stream of conscious. Like consciousness, so you're you never do the same pattern twice. Um, it feels very counterintuitive, summon, but go on. Yes, right, exactly. Like it, it, you basically have to turn off your brain in order to do it. You can't think about it. It's um, weird
1: because I feel like turning off my brain would make me more susceptible to doing a pattern. So yeah, maybe, maybe. Yeah,
2: yeah. <laughs> I don't. Yeah, it, it works
0: it. in writing. I don't think it works in practice.
2: Sure. Um, and the. So yeah, so you hear about the the sandworms just being a danger, and when they get to Arrakis, the Duke goes out and and witnesses a sandworm eating one of their spice harvesters because there was a malfunction in equipment and it wasn't picked up the way it was supposed to be. Um, and you get like this this sense of how big they are at that that scale. Um, but then when Jessica and Paul are with the fremen later, you start to see oh wait a minute the fremen have a have some sort of more of a unique relationship with the sandworms. Um, at two points in the movie, so this is not a spoiler, but the Fremen have things called thumpers, which are devices that they put in the sand that just thump, rhythmically, which will call a worm. Uh, and then at the very end of the movie, we see there's a Fremen who is riding a sandworm, which... Yeah, and from my and from
1: my understanding, yeah, and from (laughs) my understanding, older illustrations and I don't know how big the sandworms were in the David Lynch or the miniseries, but I've seen illustrations from like the book where where a person riding a sandworm could get their legs around them, almost like they like if they had a saddle. So like they're big, but they're like rideable like a like maybe an elephant size at most but only about as wide as a horse versus the movie has them like they're kaiju they're godzilla sized.
2: they're they're typically the latter they're typically super gigantic massive so big that a single rider on the back you might not even be able to see him okay um i was this curious out there. so no 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 absolutely um throwing this out there the artwork that you may have seen, or that you saw, might have been from the the novel God Emperor of Dune. Okay. In which, and again, this is a sixty-year-old spoiler, uh, but there is a character who is basically part human, part sandworm, and he is much smaller than a regular worm. So any art that has him, it's more like a like a big thing next to a person. So there's kind of a mix there. Well, let me see if oh, I yes.
1: Google if I Google "dune yeah, yeah. sandworm" and look for pictures that are not from uh, the movie. Sure. Uh, let's see. Here's the first one that looks interesting. It's not exactly what I was talking about, but here's the first one that looks interesting to me, mm-hmm. uh, which I know the listeners can't see it. But yeah, oh, that oh, cool. no, no. Here's here's more what I was talking about. Uh, I don't know if this is the exact picture, but this is close to what I was what I had seen before.
2: Oh, Okay, yeah, that yeah that's. And again, the, the sandworms do vary in size, and and they they mention that briefly. But yeah, typically the ones they they interact with are very large ones. Actually, and actually, there's a really cool thing that uh, they talk about in the book, which I'm, I'm sure will never make it into the movie. But um, the Fremen actually refer to and uh, that would be a different point. Never mind. Uh, but um, yeah, that's sort of the opposite. But yes, the, the Fremen talk about like worm sizes and you you could even say they might have some superstitions about the size of a worm that that shows up at different times. Okay, because I've uh,
1: played I've played the Mass Effect trilogy and I remember the whole Thresher maws, which are very obviously inspired mm. by the, the, yeah. the came from the, the the Dune sand worms. And I will say that I really like how in Dune Part One their their mouths have this like filter. It looks like like kind of like a blue whale's mouth, but in 360 it's a cool degrees. Design yeah
0: like yeah. the movie is full of cool designs it's just the movie doesn't want you to appreciate or doesn't want to react to how cool everything is
2: yeah and actually so let, let me ask you guys a question so what can you tell and i'm I'm not trying to trick you i just i'm genuinely i'm interested yeah. to know like how this came across what do you guys remember about the weapons that the fremen use
1: uh, i remember that they had a special name a chris blade i think or Chris' okay. knife, something like that, mm-hmm. and then and... I remember that the one that Zendaya's character gives to Timmy's character, Paul, she says was made from the a tooth of. She said like a named sandworm, like some. I remember something about what she said indicated that it was like a special sandworm, like a like a particularly big one or something. But okay. I think that's what I remember, anyway.
2: Okay, yeah, that's more than I remember. Okay, no, and and it's 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 very subtle. It's only in really talked about in that scene. They, I, I, I really wish they had done more. Um, so yes, so the Fremen, they're they're sort of you you can't be a Fremen unless you have a chris knife, and it is the it is a sharpened tooth of a, a sandworm. Yeah, um, and they have all sorts of so what they what they reference in the movie, and actually it, it's mentioned by a couple of characters, but it's Shai Hulud, is what the Fremen call the sandworms, and it and that term has a ton of mysticism and religion built into it. Okay. To the Fremen, the sandworms are holy creatures in their whole outlook on things. That makes me uh, wonder,
1: not to derail you, but yeah, yeah. I, earlier you said something that, that brought to mind the the, the palm trees, mm-hmm. and how they're very obviously... Or maybe that's not the right way to say it, but one of the meta narrative things I feel like going on with the palm trees, this idea of, hey, there's these things that have this sacred relevance from a practical standpoint. They're terrible here and are literally costing lives, but Mm -hmm. the people here are valuing them more than the potential lives or that the lives that are being paid Mm -hmm. for them. And then when we burn them, there's like a symbolic thing there of, I mean, it felt to me like foreshadowing of Mm -hmm. burning away what might be seen as archaic, religious kind of symbolism that is actually hurting people and then I hear you mention the sandworms being these sacred things that also mm-hmm. are very dangerous things but that people have learned to live with and in fact make tools from and I don't know I don't have like a conclusion here but you just sure. you kicked off something in my mind linking these yeah. things
2: Yeah I don't know no, for sure yeah and there's there's definitely a, a, like a push pull with that kind of stuff going on yeah um the yeah the I don't I don't know how much they're going to get into the Fremen religion sort of beyond that I mean there's not a whole lot more you need to know um so what one of the characters that we didn't mention before is Dr. Kynes, Liet Kynes, and she was the woman who and again like I I don't I don't think this will have resonated with with many viewers who weren't familiar with the book but she's what's called she was what's called the judge of the change. Oh yeah. She's yeah. the lady that basically like Lido complained to when all their their leftover Harkonnen stuff was crap and then they also tried to get her to be like, "Hey, you'll go and testify that the emperor sent Sardaukar against us, won't you?" And, and, and she's the one she that very
1: like, obviously says the like oh you're fulfilling a prophecy kind of thing to herself yes
2: yes 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 exactly um that character who in the novel is a man but totally there's there's nothing about that character that needed to be a man um so it's fine that it's swapped in the movie Mm -hmm. um that character is is really important in the novel um so much so that there's an, an appendix that's like a whole thing about him it's it's wild um But yes, uh, and that character is really cool in in the book too because it's a character that lives in two worlds. Um, He, in the novel, had been sort of like a a member of the royal court, almost with the empire, the emperor, um, but then also sort of became fremen and then became almost a religious figure himself because the fremen, the fremen have a lot of beliefs. And a lot of hopes and dreams for the future, and they're really, really interesting because they—how do I—how do I put this? the Fremen want paradise, but they're because their lives are so hard on Arrakis, they have sort of like they've d- drilled into them as a people the idea of superhuman patience. They have a plan to change Arrakis into a paradise that will take thousands of years not nobody they know will ever see it but they are wholly spiritually devoted to that to all the things that need to happen for in order for that to occur um, it's it's a really cool like really important part of the novel um, I mean from a quick visual bit I because I know that
1: it's kind of important in the previous adaptations as well yeah. the the blue eyes thing. Is that, I got the impression from the the movie anyway that it's like, well, when you live on this planet long enough, this is probably what happens to you, but the Harkonnens don't have it, but then again, I don't think they actually probably lived on on Arrakis, so is it like a spoiler to what causes that eye thing? Because, I mean, one of Paul's visions was him with the Mm -hmm. eyes, which could itself just be a metaphor for him being with the fremen people, or it could be a literalization, I don't know, I'm just curious.
2: Yeah, no, and that's a really good question because they didn't really explain that very well. The blue eyes, which in the novel it's called the eyes of, of the eye-bad, um, it's solely a side effect to long-term exposure to, to spice. That's all it is. Okay, that's why so I, I fact, figured, but what's Yeah, sure. so in fact, in, in the novel, there are tons of nobility on living on other planets who get blue-tinged eyes because they, te- they take so much spice. Now, they typically wear contacts to hide it, <laughs> because it's seen as, like, low class, but, or, like, like they don't want to show that they've used so much spice to stay healthy and live for so long. It's, it's showing but, dependency,
1: um, which is showing weakness.
2: Yes, yeah, exactly. But, yes, it's just, yes, but essentially, yes, anyone who lives on a rat will most likely get that to, to some degree
1: all right well scott i'm going to give you an opportunity to to have <laughs> a, anything else you want to say in a second here but i do feel like i've stepped on auric uh, a lot so orc do you have any because we're, we're a little past time so we're going to start wrapping soon do you have any sure. particular questions or things you want to
0: address with scott orc i mean i'll lob the softball because i think a lot of my own personal issues getting into this like i could get past the self-seriousness because it looks cool, but just the density—like uh, it feels like the wall through them. and again, easy softball answer. Should this have been a TV series where they could have explained and had the time to let this go and mm. be, or is it like, yeah, it would have worked, but it never would have lived up to the spectacle? That like, what's the trade-off here of movie versus TV show, ultimately?
2: Yeah, that's a really good question, <clears throat> and I think it comes down, back to the first novel. Like, there's not. Okay, for the amount of information that's in the book, the actual plot is... There's less plot than there is world building, you might say. Yes, there's a...
0: It's plot's small, but the world, like, it's... What do you mean you don't know all this stuff? Like, you just spent a good hour and a half explaining (laughs) shit to us Mm -hmm. that's kinda in the movie. But the movie also just expects you to understand and know. Like, what do you mean you don't know who these people are and their prophets? (laughs) <laughs> what do you mean you don't know under- they're using mind control what do you mean you don't under come on are you really a Dune fan
1: I mean to be fair after everything Scott's told us I feel most I don't know what the right word is uh, slighted by stuff about the Bene Gesserit that did, mm. I feel like did not convey in the movie <laughs> that's interesting
2: but yeah there, there'll definitely be more in part 2 um, In so and in some weird ways Th- let's let's put it this way too in part 2 things are gonna get real weird and people who watched part one with no previous knowledge and be like, oh, okay, I kind of see how this world works. They're going to come out of part two being like, what the hell was that? <laughs>
0: well, yeah, yeah right, so it, it, it'll be really interesting. <laughs> Give us your predictions how people are going to react to part two.
2: Um, People are going to be confused and they're going to be like, that's not the story I was expecting and not where I expected some of these characters to go. Now, again, that's that's also a little bit like how they end up fully portraying the characters. But like, people who you think are the good guys maybe not so good uh, and like i said and and definitely some weird stuff is going to happen um and it, and like you were saying with the sort of with like the all of the like the build up and the the world building stuff we didn't even touch on like there's a there's a lot more about the technology that's really important in the novel that they kind of skip yeah they have like just...
0: force fields and they don't really address that in the movie because that's why everyone yeah. does that's why sword fighting is so important Is like oh we all have yeah. force fields
2: yep yep and and that's really important and like so people have shields right they have personal shields you can put shields around vehicles um you sometimes you can build shields large enough to cover entire structures uh shields are super problematic though because if you shoot a shield with a laser it sets off an atomic reaction. Now, part one very specifically ignored that bit of trivia from the novel because when the when uh, the Harkonnens take over from the Atreides, you specifically see on screen Duncan is flying around in an ornithopter that is very clearly shielded, and a Harkon and a Harkonnen ships are shooting lasers at it. Now, every hardcore Dune fan smacked their forehead when they saw it. Because that's... In-universe, that would be the stupidest thing anybody could possibly do. Because if that laser even grazed the shield, that entire city is vaporized. And the whole point is that they're taking over. So, like, that was frustrating, but on, like, a super nitpicky level. I admit Um, as a a not...
1: As someone not in the know, I was more questioning: How come a blow dart made it through the shield?
2: Well, yes, no, really good point. But as as Auric was was sort of saying, um, a lot of the like the sword fighting and some of the and a lot of the technology has been adapted to overcome shields. Because as we know from every, from hist- history and every sci-fi and fantasy, um, as soon as you come up with a defensive measure, you'll come up with an offensive measure to counter it. Yeah. Um, but it's also but. It, it's it's really interesting because they didn't bring this up in part one at all, and I they, who knows if they will in part two. But um, sandworms don't like shield. Yeah, they brought it up because they they mentioned
1: that shields because they said why don't we shield the the harvester, and they said well it puts the oh, sandworms right. killing okay. frenzy. Oh right, okay,
2: yes, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and again, like whether that has to do with the harmonics and there's a there's a repetition to it or whatever. But um, yeah, so there's so when you get into the fremen stuff, then you start to see oh how do people do things without shields and what what are their systems like Um, and and again I don't want to talk too much about it but at at the very end of part one when Paul duels Jameis um, there's man that scene is so impactful in the book and not all of it came through in the movie but part of their so you, you saw that they fight and Paul like stops the fight and says do you yield and the Fremen are, like, super offended by that, right? Mm-hmm. Because this is a fight to the death, but you wouldn't know that unless you're part of their tradition. And then they fight a little bit longer, and Paul, like, has a, a couple missteps, and then Jessica says to the rest of them, like, Paul's never killed somebody before. Um, and then, like, oh, okay, that makes sense. But if you if you know more, or you can sort of read between the lines, also, Paul is used to shield fighting, and they're, they're Fremen, they're not doing that. So Paul is... There's a very famous part of the, the all of the technology and all the backstory stuff, the slow blade penetrates the shield. So Paul, every time Paul goes for a strike, he slows down at the last second because that's the way he's been trained forever. Because that's the way you have to fight in order to overcome someone with a shield. Mm-hmm. But the Furman don't use shields. So every time he slows down, which then would turn into a killing blow depending on how he's using it, Jameis can sort of get away and be like, what are you doing? Like, And, and, then, and then it's, yeah, mm. it's so there's even more built into that that doesn't that I don't feel came through at all and yeah, they set it up but, in the movie but they didn't pay it off yeah but again like they, they might refer back to that scene in what comes next okay. so and i'm i'm hoping they do for like a really a uh, really important part which i don't want to talk <laughs> too much about but yeah um I was like oh and also it's sort of funny cuz if if you're familiar with other movies like histories of cutting out scenes for one reason or another um, are you guys familiar with Apocalypse Now? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Um, do you know about the dinner scene? <laughs> it, it is so sort familiar. Of like so one of the so one of the big things that was cut from the standard version of that movie is there was a dinner scene where like randomly along their path they end up at this plantation and there's this like twenty minute long scene where they're having dinner with these people and talking about stuff. It's super weird. Uh, Super unnecessary for the overall story, but it's kind of funny because in Dune, there is a very lengthy dinner scene that happens when the Atreides first get to Arrakis, and you have a ton of characters, and they just dump massive amounts of exposition and world building in that scene, and I always, and whenever something new Dune comes out, you're like, are they going to do the dinner scene? Of course they're not, they can't do that. Alright, hold on, hold on, I just pause All yeah right, so try. in basically like this dinner scene is is really impactful in the novel but like it's they say that do well before part one they said that dune was essentially unfilmable and that scene is unfilmable but it would be it would be really cool if somehow we got it one day maybe, maybe in an animated uh, version of dune I guess
0: hmm. that'd actually be really cool because I think the biggest appeal of this movie is visually. Mm -hmm. It's amazing. Like, holy shit, every penny is on screen. But I kind of need to know what the fuck is going on if I'm really going to engage. And that's kind of where I came up against Dune. It's like, I don't know what's going on, and I feel like the movie is judging me.
2: (laughs) 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 All right, well... Oh, go ahead. one, One last super personal nitpick, and I don't know if anybody else felt this, but I appreciate that they went with a different... Color scheme for Arrakis um, and for the sky, but for me, the slightly cool tone of the sky and their very limited use of heat haze, it, it never looks hot to me. Mm, yeah, I get that. That's true. I, I don't know. It was just like, I mean, it, Arrakis, like, you die in a day without a still suit, but it, it that didn't come through in the movie for me. I yeah, I, I agree,
1: actually. So, do you have any, like, final things for now that you want to share with any listeners about Dune the book and Dune Part 1 and Dune the David Lynch? Any of that that you want?
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I would say, and I, as you can tell from listening, like, I'm a huge fan, um, I would say that if you, if you are interested... Um you might want to give the novel a shot, especially if you watched part one because now at least you'll have some familiarity with what's going on in the characters it it is i would say that dune is it's very dense it is long, but it is worth the effort for most people if you if you if you slog through it and and parts of it are slogs i'm not'm I'm not gonna lie it's not a perfect book um but it is it it's it's really cool. you'll finish it and be like, oh man, this is why people talk about this as. A masterpiece. This is why it's always on top lists and stuff like that. Um, and also, sort of conversely, maybe um, I love David Lynch's movie. Um, it is in 1984 um, is when it came out. It is wacky. It takes some really weird uh, l- interpretations of the material. Um, Frank Herbert liked it. He was like, "Yeah, do what you want in the movie. It's fine." Um, but it's. Uh, <laughs> It, it's it's something. <laughs> it's, it's, it's it's a wild ride. Um, some there, there's this perception that Dune purists hate that movie because like Lynch made up some stuff in it and whatever. I I know a lot of people who love the novels and none of them hate that movie. So I don't know if this is like an internet thing. I'm sure some people out there hate that movie, but I don't know anybody. I who
0: does. know it's. I don't think I've never met one that hates it. I've seen plenty of people going. It's not for me. I fall into the camp of, it's not for me. But that has been my experience so far with all forms of Doom. Like, yeah, it's cool if you like this. This is not for me, though. I'll also it, say, it,
1: as a as a side note, I'll stick my flag on the hill, that I think adaptation purists are inherently in the wrong. I think oh, yes. when you adapt anything from one medium to another, regardless of what the source and destination are, you have to change things to suit the new medium. You just do.
2: Yeah. Yeah yeah um but again like i i think that movie is yes it, it's long it's dense but it is my god is that movie a visual piece i mean just the crazy sets and the vivid colors and the different costumes again like how they really differentiated the different peoples with how they looked um obviously the limits of technology in 1984 with you know some of the like the composite shots are not the best but um, also there's, we'll throw there's... shields. <laughs> yeah. uh, well I mean it's a style uh, also e- something that's really really cool about that is that a ton of it is shot on miniature especially like for the sandworms and the exteriors of the um, like the palaces and stuff and as we miniature people know one thing that's really hard to do in miniature is sand so there's actually like this whole um, there's a bunch of stuff that's been written about this but the way they did the miniatures, they had to use—I forget exactly what it was—but um, a type of mineral that they had to use in place of actual sand for the miniatures. But it was super um, toxic and cancer-causing. Ooh. Oh so no! Every, so every, well, but they they knew that. So everybody on the sets had like tons of um, air filtration systems. Uh, so it's like a really interesting little tidbit about how they did. The miniatures. Oh, neat. But yeah, so well all right go ahead and then of course if you if you want to get all the way in um you can look into the attempted 1974 dune adaptations by alejandro jodorowsky Uh, they even made a documentary about it it is completely insane (laughs) this man was on a lot of drugs he had a lot of ideas the movie was going to be 14 hours long. Jeez. It, it was going to star, among a million others, Salvador Dali, Orson Welles, Gloria Swanson, David Carradine, Hervé Villachez, Mick Jagger, uh, Pink Floyd was going to do the music. He hired oh, okay. of...
0: I've heard of this insane... Yeah. It's, it's Fever completely...
2: Mm-hmm. Yes, 1,000%. Uh, um, but yeah, again, there's a documentary about it. it, it the documentary is amazing, just that... Uh, but it's interesting because out of that, a lot of people got their ideas that they ended up using later in other things. Um, Dan O'Bannon was going to work on the effects for that, and he literally had a mental breakdown after it collapsed. And then he wrote a bunch of scripts, one of which became Alien. Um, H.R. Giger worked on the designs, and a lot of that stuff that he worked on, especially for the Harkonnens, ended up going into Alien. Um, so like I
0: want to see Guy Geiger's. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So it, there's a there's a ton of artwork out there um, that you can look up. So I'm just yeah, imagining so there's,
0: his interpretation of the worms. Yeah.
2: Oh yes. Very. Uh, oh yeah. Yeah. So anyway, so, <laughs> so there's there's a lot more out there that that you can dig into if you if you have the the interest and the time.
1: Well. Hopefully, we'll have you back on to discuss more do when we when Ulrich and I have a bit more information to ask you <laughs> to ask you about.
0: Well, there will be a part two four part two where we sit down and ask Scott, going, What the fuck was that? I mean, <laughs> what Scott says we're happened? probably going
2: to be confused, so we're going to have to. Bring up questions to you. I was just the
0: first time. Everyone's like, Oh, wait until you get to the second half. It's like, yeah,
2: oh boy. and then on that one, we can talk about all of the do comic books over the years and the toys and the games and all the other stuff. Holy shit. Yeah, we're, we're
1: at an hour and 36 here and there's all that too. I can't wait. I do want to hear it. Dune, to me, strikes me as something that I love, would love to read about. I'm not mm. into the style of how the story is conveyed, but I love the actual like, content is the impression I get. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, for sure.
2: Yeah, yeah. And again, like, I, I'm I'm a huge fan of the novels, but I I fully I, I'll come right out and say it. They are not for everybody. They are not easy to read. You don't just, like, pick it up and read it casually. Uh, I know well, people who take take notes when they read it. Like, it's, yeah. I know
1: my girlfriend has several of them, because I've seen them on her bookshelf, so at least I have access to them. But, anyway, so, before we get lost in the sauce even more, since we're just having <laughs> such a good time talking with Scott, we've gone half an hour over. <laughs> Is Oops. it this... Is at this point that we give you the special soapbox that you can stand on as a thank you for coming out and talking with us. And yeah, I've had a killer time, but you get to plug anything you want to plug.
2: Cool, yeah. Um, I I have a book. Uh, it's called Naming Your Little Geek. Uh, you can get it anywhere books are sold. Amazon, uh, you get it from your local bookstore, have them order it. Uh, it is a baby naming geek, but or baby naming book, but you can use it for naming anything. Uh, and yes, it does have a ton of Dune... Um, Names in there, All, almost every main character from the like the first book and the first movies, um, but also a, a, a smattering of of characters from later books as well. Uh, yeah.
1: All right. Excellent. Well, then let's go quickly through some suggestions of the week since we had such a good time talking Dune. <laughs> but these are just things that we, the three of us, have been into recently individually that might be worth other people looking into. I'll get us off real quick and just say my adventures with Superman, new animation. Mm. Just cool. came out recently. There's only like two episodes, Third episode dropped, like tonight as we're recording. I think it's very good. It looks like the that Voltron show from a few years ago, animation mm-hmm. style. Uh, but yeah, Superman, good stuff.
2: That's my it recommendation. It is so good. It is it is amazing. Like, well, it's really funny to me. Seconds.
1: I'm a huge Superman fan, and I constantly find myself having to defend Superman against my peers because they don't understand him. I know that sounds pretentious. I apologize, but I keep seeing people loving this show and saying things like. All oh, Superman, they made him a big himbo, and it really understands that Clark Kent is the character. And I'm sitting here like, that's always been true.
2: <laughs> the best yeah, versions
1: it's... of Superman understand that.
2: <laughs> yeah, I, I I second that. It is it is so good. I mean, again, we're only two episodes, but so far it's fantastic. Yeah.
0: Anyway, here's hoping that it doesn't turn terrible in the time between recording and release. <laughs>
1: <laughs> hey, if anything, the first
0: like a three month window. Well, here's Whoa. what I'll
1: tell you: even if that does happen, the first two episodes would make a. Perfectly solid standalone Superman comic, essentially.
0: Hey, when it started, we thought it was good. We had no idea about the race-mixing subtext that was going to come in Episode 5. Oh, fingers crossed. No, no. Anyway, <laughs> what's
1: your suggestion, Ulrich?
0: Uh, I don't know if I have to explain this, because I feel like if you are of our age, you know BattleBots. If you don't, BattleBots was a robot fighting competition in the 90s, and then they brought it back, and it's Better than ever. I don't know how
1: to... He means that... He he didn't make this clear. He means literally. Like, real people making real robots and then fighting them in an arena filled with traps. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And I have been watching this since it aired in the 90s, and I'm watching the new current seasons with my daughter, and Mm. it's fun. It's just... They take killer robots and make them fight each other. And it's fun being an old fan and seeing these. Like, I remember you from the old season you can actually do damage now. And then seeing the damage that they do to each other and going, <laughs> holy shit. And it's very well done. It's on HBO Max currently. And the best part about HBO Max is when they get real kind of you know deep and like, oh, well, it's got this much torque. You just hit the fast forward button till the mm. robot smashing part starts.
1: Yeah. <laughs> nice. I'm an engineer, so I like the... But anyway,
2: yes, yes.
0: <laughs> it's got something for everybody.
1: All right. <laughs> Scott, do you have a recommendation
2: for us? Um I mean honestly go check out Dune in one form or another. Um the only other thing that I'm super enjoying right now is um Star Trek Strange New Worlds. God, I love that show. Um I really so, want to get
1: to it, I just have no time. Go on. Sorry. Yeah,
2: we're we're like we're I think the fourth episode of the second season just came out as of time of recording. Um there there was there was one episode I didn't love so far this season, but every other episode just perfect trek. I love it. Can't 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 get enough.
1: I will say that even though Trek has had some real bumpy stuff in the last couple of years, I have never been happier with the state of Trek that I am right now where there's so many wildly different shows airing at the same mm-hmm. time.
2: Oh, yes, yeah, and I, I talk about this a lot because like I'm I'm I try to be like as the most positive fandom person I can be. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I there are there are elements of Star Trek that right now that I do not like and that is fine because other people like it and it's making a bigger tent and getting more success and that's great. Well, Um, not to go off on this tangent,
1: but I feel like (laughs) more IP should look at what Star Trek is currently doing where it's like, yeah, we've got this animated comedy and we've got this legacy drama and we've got this more like standard episodic fare and then we've got this other Mm -hmm. kids show and yeah, more IP should function like this.
2: (laughs) Yeah, oh, and you know what? I'm going to use my prophetic powers. When this episode comes out, I really, really hope that the executives get their heads out of their asses and figure out what to do with Star Trek Prodigy, because as of right now, uh, Season 2 has been made, but Paramount Plus has dumped it, and they're trying to find a new home for it, and it's really annoying because that show is fantastic, great for kids, great for adults, and I want Season 2 and potentially more, and they're really screwing things up. So let's let's hope that when we talk about this next time, it'll be a, a good end to the story. Excellent. All right, well, one last thank you to Scott again for talking with us. It's a pleasure. I Obviously, I love talking about Dune I, for <laughs> as long as it takes to read the book. <laughs> all right, Ulrich, give us our outro.
0: All right, well, thank you all for listening. Be sure to like, share, subscribe. Do all the things. Share this with your Dune friends. Share this with people that don't like Dune. Just share it with everybody.
1: And by sharing it, I mean, we probably mean sharing it from whatever platform you're currently listening to this on. And thank you for doing that, by the way. But if there's some other platform that your friends are on and that we're not on for some reason, you know, tell us about that and maybe
0: we can make that happen. I don't know. As always, this has been Lord Commander Ulrich.
1: And his S.H.I.E.L.D. brother, Axel Wright.
0: Be sure to tune in next time. And as always, stay honorable.